So howdy, I'm Daniel, uh, as many of you know. Uh, for those of you who don't, you might know me as a dude who's uh, been blessed to be Sarah's husband. Uh, we've been married for uh, almost nine years now, coming up in October. You might also know me as Levi's dad. Um, he's now an expert at crawling, at getting into stuff, and being insanely cute, if I say so myself. So uh, also, thank you to everyone who serves uh, with the kids. Um, Anyway, I'm honored that Tim invited me to share about the most well-understood fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Only it's, yeah, it's not. But it's, it's even a hard one to define. If we go to Galatians 5, through 23, we've been studying through this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, most of these, I think we have kind of a, a cursory definition. We kind of understand what's going on. But goodness is a hard one. And why did Tim ask me to speak on goodness as the last fruit of the Spirit in the series? I, I don't know. But I can tell you with certainty that it's not because I'm an expert here. Today, I want to walk through Mark 10 um, and Jesus' encounter with a man who was a self-described expert on goodness. Now, for those who have been in uh, the church for a while, it's probably a pretty familiar passage. But it's also one that I think can help to correct a few misunderstandings about what goodness is and what it isn't. But let me open up in prayer real quick before we get started. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for gathering us all together this morning to um, worship in your name. Um, I ask that you give me the words to say. Uh, and that you'd bring just peace and grace and, and comfort and hope to those who are going through some really, really hard times right now. And that you'd grow us in love for one another this morning. Thank you so much for who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so before we jump into Mark 10... I want to introduce four truths that I think we're going to need to wrestle with if we're going to be able to discuss goodness biblically. So they are, one, God is good. Two, you're not God. Three, Jesus is God. And four, Jesus loves you. Now, you might be thinking, wow, um, you know, those are some pretty simple, obvious statements. But for you, I challenge you to actually think about these a bit more. I mean, do you, do you really believe them? The implications of these are, are huge. And now maybe there's one or two that makes you uncomfortable or one or two you simply just don't even buy. Let's get started with Mark 10, and we're going to start in verse 17, where uh, the man runs up to him. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great. This is, this is starting out excellent. I mean, a guy runs up to Jesus and he literally says, tell me how to be saved. All Jesus has to do is teach him to pray a prayer, maybe baptize him, um, you know, add him to his crew. Like, he's done. <clears throat> only we can easily read ahead and see 
that's not what Jesus does. So I want to take a brief aside and show you a quick comparison that I think helps, to, helps me with this, uh, this response from Jesus. Can anyone tell me who this is? Again, this is your chance for uh, bragging rights of our first service. So, um, yeah. Anyone know who this is? <laughs> all right, all right. So I'll tell you it's Magnus Carlson. Um, <clears throat> and does anyone know what he's known for? <laughs> Really close. You were even in first service. <laughs> All right. So um, I, would, I would have accepted clothing model. He actually does that too. But he's, he's more well known for being the number one chess player in the world, maybe even the number one in history. Uh, he became world champion at the age of 22. And in 2014, he actually had the highest chess rating of anyone in history uh, with a rating of 2882 for all the chess geeks who want to know that. So my point is simply this. Magnus Carlsen, he knows chess. And when you or I look at a chessboard, like this one right here, what we probably see is that there's the same number of pieces on both sides. Um, no one's really in check right now. It's a nice board. But when Magnus looks at the, the board, he sees everything. He sees the positions how they got there, where they're going next, the attacks, the counterattacks, the, the strengths and the weaknesses of the, the, the board. And then when he makes a move, you can be sure of one thing. It's almost certainly the best move there is. Now, this has actually been verified by comparing all of his moves against some of the best computer programs on Earth. And of anyone in the world, Magnus Carlsen is most likely to make the very best move. So why do I bring up Magnus? Well, for me, I think it's easy to forget that as good as Magnus Carlsen is at chess and reading a chessboard, Jesus is even better at reading people. So when Jesus responds to someone or he asks them a question, he already knows the answer, and he can see 13 moves ahead. So with that in mind, let's look at Jesus' response to the man who runs up, kneels, and asks, asks about eternal life. <clears throat> Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. What just happened there? I mean, does anyone else see this as strange? Jesus takes this saving faith moment, right? This, this teachable moment, and he totally goes pedantic on the guy, just picking on his wording. It, it seems like he's picking on something that doesn't matter at all. See, he picks on the man's wording in his opening line where he calls Jesus a good teacher. I mean, the guy is actually trying to pay Jesus a compliment, and he even kneels. So why does Jesus start by correcting him? I think it's because Jesus actually is seeing many moves ahead, that the whole question about eternal life is actually about goodness and merit. And Jesus just cuts to the chase. He says that this man wants to be saved based on a misunderstanding of goodness. Jesus' response is also that first truth I mentioned, that God is good, and that no one is good except God alone. Now, theologically speaking, this is huge. 
Because whereas religions may teach people how to be good, Jesus says that God is good and that only God is good. Stop and think through that for a minute. Is it hard to believe that God is good? I mean, if your life's easy and going great right now, it's probably not hard at all. Maybe you've had some bumps and bruises, but, you know, life's gotten better, so sure, yeah, God's good. But what happens when things get really hard? What happens when the Twin Towers fall? What happens in the midst of a miscarriage? Is God good in the midst of a divorce? For me, I was 18 when the question became, is God good when your mom is diagnosed with lung cancer, having never smoked a day in her life? On December 5th, 2003, um, my mom, a healthy, active, non-smoking woman of 47, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And a series of events that I can only describe as um, lucky or accidental were it not for the providence of God. See, when a new heart imaging machine uh, was purchased by a friend of my dad, he's a doctor, he signed up my mom. Uh, she's got a, a family history of heart disease. So instead of revealing information about her heart, though, it showed an unexpected lung tumor blocking the view. So even more surprising, actually, was that my mom's last visit to a physician was only two weeks before. And so had this not caught it, the only uh, indication we would have had was when the cancer was in its last stages. So we reasoned, you know, God is good. He's given us a trial. But this is one that can be medically conquered. He showed it to us while there's still time to act. So I, I got the call. I finished my finals early, and I came home. And... Mom and Dad called the elders of the church, and we all prayed. We, we prayed hard. We prayed that she would be miraculously healed. Uh, we prayed that the surgery to remove half her left lung um, wouldn't even be necessary, or that if it was, that it would be successful, and that would, that would be the end of it. But not for our will to be done, but God's will. And God, through this all, wasn't just giving my family a trial to go through alone. He was really giving us power, comfort, and just immense faith through the other Christians uh, in our lives, through the church. The surgery didn't go well. Uh, Much more was infected with the cancer than could be seen on the scans. And uh, my mom actually almost didn't make it off the operating table as an artery collapsed during surgery and had to be repaired. But as the surgeon kept going, he he just kept finding more and more cancer. And toward the end, he found a metastasis. The cancer had spread outside her lungs. And such a find basically meant that the cancer was stage four, that removing part of her lung had been a pointless endeavor, medically speaking, and that doctors were only going to predict a matter of months for mom to be with us. So with that, we returned home. Um, We celebrated Christmas and Jesus' birth and really celebrated together with a newfound faith that God had given us. Um, We knew there was a tough road ahead, months of cancer treatment, 
definitely some hard times. But things never go as humans plan. They go as, as God plans. And on December 29th, just a few days after Christmas, and less than a month after my mom was diagnosed, uh, she died of sepsis and went home and finished her, her race. So a little tip for you. Um, if you're comforting a grieving friend, lead with hugs, not advice. Sometimes don't even lead with scripture. I can't remember how many friends quoted Romans 8.28 to me, trying to be helpful. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the tough part was that Romans 8.28 rang hollow for quite a while. It's easy to read the Bible and, and ask, okay, what, what good news does this have for me right now? Especially when you're going through trials and hard times. In the case of Romans 8.28, the question was, okay, God, how's this situation going to work out for good, huh? I don't see much good in this. One of the things I've learned, though, is that the Bible isn't a self-help book. When I read it focused on you know, me, my situation, my family situation, I completely missed the point that God's the hero, not me. My point is this, that your perspective really does matter when you come to Jesus and when you come to the Bible. And it's, it's not a manual to read looking to see how it's going to make your life better. It doesn't say that God has your best in mind if you're the hero of your own story. It also doesn't say that God owes you or me an explanation of how he is working everything out for good. What the verse does say is that God has the best in mind. And if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, then you can let go of the worry because we can trust that the brokenness of our world hasn't broken his plan. Jesus wins in the end. And the good news is that he came for the people who admit that we're sinful, that we're sick, that we're poor, that we're hurting, and who turn to him. This is who he's really given the right to become sons and daughters of God. But to do that, we've got to be okay with admitting that on our own, we're not okay and realizing that we're not at the end of the story yet. We're in the middle. So keeping up appearances that everything is okay, that everything is good because you're a Christian, it isn't going to help you through the tough times. I discovered that I needed to be honest with God, that I needed to be honest with those closest to me about how I was doing. Life really hurts sometimes. I mean, really hurt. Can, can we be honest with this? Life really really hurts sometimes. And the sooner we admit that, the sooner we can find healing in Jesus. Now, God's done some amazing things in my family in the years since. He, we've had some ups and downs, we've had some hard times, and we've had some really good ones. My dad has gotten remarried to an amazing woman, and I'm so blessed to be part of um, two families that God has, has joined together into one. But what's the point of this, this whole story? I, I think it's not that God's going to prevent the hard times. Sometimes he leads us straight into the storms. Now, 
The point is that trials are the times that reveal who we really are. Trials reveal what God's doing in our hearts. Trials remove that, that, that steady kind of middle ground where we spend most of our lives. And it forces us to either realize that God's good and run toward him, or we rely on ourselves and we walk away. Now, in my life, time and time again, God has proven that he's in control, that he's trustworthy, he's faithful, and he's good. He's big enough to handle the hard times that, that will come because we live in a broken and sinful world. So if we accept that God is good and that God alone is truly good, what does it mean that goodness is part of the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, what, what's Paul calling us to? Well, let's, let's read what happens next in Mark 10. So Jesus, um, he's just asked, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But then he, he continues, and he says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. So the man asks how to be saved, and Jesus quotes commandments 5 through 9 from the Big Ten. Anyone find it interesting he doesn't quote you know, 1 through 4, the ones about loving God? He also says that the man already knows the commandments, so Jesus isn't telling him anything new or surprising. There's no, no new information or new revelation that God's giving him. Other places, Jesus actually sums all the commandments up as love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. So what's this guy's response? He comes back and says, Jack, got it. Did that. Can I have my eternal life certificate? I mean, he, he thinks he's good. Isn't, isn't this what we do with God sometimes? Don't we totally approach Jesus the same way and you know, we listen to a sermon or read a Bible passage and we go, sweet, I, I don't do that sin. I'm good. I'm getting pretty good at being good. Like Tim said a few weeks ago, we'll always default to religion instead of relationship, trying to be good enough so that God will love us. But every once in a while, the illusion crumbles. We find ourselves needing external conf- confirmation and validation from someone someone, anyone else, that we're good, or at least we're better than average. And sometimes it's because life gets hard that our illusion crumbles. Regardless, I think that's what this man's doing. He's basically approaching Jesus on his own terms, asking for validation and confirmation that he's good. The problem with this is, this man wasn't God. Neither am I, and neither are you. That's the second point. We don't get to walk up to God and say, I'm the hero in my own life. I've followed all the rules. So you have to accept me, to love me like I do. He's God and you and I aren't. He's good and we're not. So if you want a pretty simple and practical definition of goodness for, for us, I'd, I'd say that goodness is doing the right thing for the right reason. The problem is we don't do anything for the right reason. And 
in Isaiah 64, 6, it actually says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So the problem here is sin. It's selfishness. It's self-focus. Why are our righteous acts like filthy rags? We do them for the wrong reasons. Religion is the wrong reason. Social justice is the wrong reason. The golden rule is the wrong reason. Just being a good person is definitely the wrong reason. All of these are examples of of us believing that, that we're in control, that we're our own God, or they're us trying to earn God's favor. So the second truth there is that you're not God. There's a lot of freedom that comes from that too. And let that sink in. You're not God. You and I aren't in control. And we don't always know what's best. But more importantly, we can't earn something that Jesus died and rose again to give to us for free. And if all that sounds too good to be true, remember that this is the good news that brings us all together. It isn't too good to be true. It's just too good to keep to yourself if you really believe it. So if goodness is doing the right thing for the right reason, what is the right reason? Well, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, a pretty well-known verse, says that it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If I do good things because it feels good, or because I want to see myself as moral, or maybe because I want to be working in the common interest of mankind, I totally miss the point. All I'm really doing there is maintaining an identity, a self-perception of worth, a self-righteousness based on my own actions. For me to do any good at all, I have to start by admitting that my sins, my rebellion against God is a capital offense, and that my sentence was already paid for in full by Jesus. So the right reason here is thankfulness. It's grace. We've been given something we could never deserve and something we could never earn. It clearly says that good works can't save us, but it also says that we're given good works to do. So let's go back to Mark 10. And just after the guy says, okay, I'm good, I've done all these things, what happens next? Well, Jesus says, or he looks at him, and he loves him and says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. <clears throat> See, it's interesting that usually when Jesus runs into something, someone who's self-righteous, you know, the religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he hits them with his harshest words. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs and, and more. But Jesus responds completely differently here to this man. And amazingly, Jesus doesn't even correct the guy. He doesn't explain that the guy's broken every single one of the commandments that Jesus just listed because they're actually about your heart, not just your actions. Instead, 
Jesus looks into this man's heart, loves him, and then he just challenges one thing. I mean, certainly this guy, he's got a lot of things that aren't right, just like you and me. But Jesus challenges just one thing. Jesus says, do you love me or do you love the control of money? Am I your God or are you? Jesus even goes on and he says, then come, follow me. Does this sound familiar? I mean, this is the same offer that Jesus made to Peter, to John, to Andrew, and the rest of the twelve. So how well does the guy choose? Well, he, he chooses money over Jesus and goes away sad. He chooses to be rich and in control rather than to be poor, dependent, and follow Jesus. Now, now we get to have 20-20 vision on this one. I mean, who knows? Had this man actually given up his money and followed Jesus, we, we might even know his name. So when we read through Mark 10, here's the question I think you and I are faced with. Where is Jesus challenging you and I to give up control? What's that one thing? I mean, I don't think Jesus is calling all of us to sell everything we have. But he does challenge us all. And right where it hurts, he challenges our identity. This man's money was the central, important thing to him. Jesus saw that. He read 13 moves ahead. So what's the one thing Jesus would ask of you? I mean, he challenges us all to repent, to give up control over what defines us, because he wants to give us infinitely more. Let's look what happens next. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, full disclosure here, I'm not a New Testament expert on ancient Greek or anything. So I don't have any clever deconstructions on this metaphor. It just seems to me like a camel is big and a needle is really tiny. This isn't going to work at all, right? But then for us, we've got the really big problem that compared to the ancient world, we're all rich. Compared to the modern world, we're all rich. So we've got the impossible metaphor talking about being rich. Should we all be panicking right now? That's exactly what the disciples did. In verse 26, it says the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. If you're trying to earn your way to God, you get to solve this one. But if an infinite God is able to fit himself into human form, live a perfect life, die on a Roman cross, and then rise from the dead on the third day, then truly all things are possible with God. And in fact, Jesus is the very solution to this puzzle. That brings us to our third point, that Jesus 
is God. The point isn't that I'm not God. It's not that even that you're not God. It's that Jesus is. Notice at the beginning of the conversation, when the man starts out, Jesus asked the man, why do you call me good? He didn't say the man was wrong. He didn't even correct him. He just pointed out that the man didn't really mean what he said. But in fact, in other places, Jesus makes a bunch of really explicit claims to be God. He repeatedly uses the very holy name of God that out of reverence, the Jews, they, they wouldn't even speak it aloud. Remember the whole burning bush thing in the Old Testament? Moses asks God, okay, so when the Israelites don't believe you sent me, and they ask me for your ID, what do, what do I tell them? God's response to Moses is, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that's why it's a really big deal when Jesus says things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. And later, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they actually tried to stone him for that one. They, they realized what he was saying. In John 10, 9 through 11, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and, or to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. It's a really strong claim. And Jesus isn't claiming to be a guru, a teacher, or even a prophet. When he claims these strong I am statements, or to be good, both in the same sentence, he's definitely claiming to be divine. And the important thing to catch here is that Jesus doesn't let us, or the rich man for that matter, approach him as just a good teacher. He's the good shepherd. The encouraging part of the metaphor for me is that his followers are the sheep. Jesus loves his sheep. That's the fourth point, that Jesus loves you. It's also the hardest point to believe on a day-to-day basis for me. So let's return really quick to Mark 10, but we're going to go just before Jesus' interaction with the rich man, where he says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, to where he teaches his disciples the attitude they should have for entering it. And it's interesting, in all three Gospels where the interaction with the rich man shows up, it's immediately preceded by this. Verse 13, it says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Indignant. I mean, Jesus felt emotional pain at seeing children turned away from him. From a 21st century perspective, it's easy to look at this and go, you know, stupid disciples, what harm could it have been to have these kids just, you know, hanging out with Jesus, right? But in that culture, children were at the bottom rungs of society, and why waste Jesus' precious time? I mean, he's a famous teacher who's been performing miracles. 
He only has a certain amount of time in this city. He's a famous rabbi. Why waste his time with children who don't even understand the Torah yet? Now, for the record, I'm also showing some great restraint, not putting up more pictures of Levi right now. But um, we'll we'll go on. So in verse 15, Jesus continues, doubles down. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus makes time for the dependent, for the insignificant here. And it's the important, independent, rich man who comes next who completely misses it. Do you and I approach Jesus like these kids, or do we do it like the self-important rich man? I know all too often I'm the latter. But the good news is that when we come to him like children, Jesus has all the time in the world for us. See, when I'm the hero of my own kingdom, that's when I miss his. And when I act like I'm in control, that I'm God, that's when I miss him the most. See, it's not just that, it's not like he's gone anywhere. It's just that I'm too busy paying attention to me, to myself, to the news, to my work, to everyone else, everything else but him. So with all this talk about goodness, what do we do? with the really tough questions. How is God still good through all the bad things? Or to ask the really cliche question, right? Why do do bad things happen to good people? Ask Jesus. He's the only one this, this really applies to. He's the only one who's truly good. The rest of us aren't good, and we're not God, And by nature, we're all actually at war against him. We don't usually get a peek at what God's perfect plan is and how Romans 8.28 is actually going to play out. We don't usually get to understand the why behind anything. But when we look at the only truly good God-man, Jesus, the Bible does give us a glimpse at how his plan is better. See, Jesus was beaten for our sins. He was killed in our place. And what good came of the brutality and the injustice? Our very salvation. He rose from the dead on the third day, bringing reconciliation and hope to the entire world. So if God can work the wrongest of wrongs for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, maybe he's got the rest too. For me, that's the really difficult part of faith. It's trusting that my perspective isn't the one that matters, that I don't see clearly, but he does, that his perspective matters. And our faith isn't unreasonable. It's, it's very reasonable if just one thing is true, Jesus' resurrection. If he truly rose from the dead and if he says that he's the good shepherd, then we're in good hands. I'm not God, and... I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I can make sense of the evil, the pain, the tragedies of the world. But the question really is, can I learn to be okay with that? Can I be okay with being a sheep who doesn't control everything, but who knows the one in control and knows that Jesus, my shepherd, he loves me? 
So to kind of sum up Mark 10 here, it's because Jesus loved the rich man in Mark 10 that he challenged that man's identity. It's because he loves you and me that he challenges our identities too. Your money, your job, your legacy, your kids, your relationships, your addictions, your regrets, your organizations, even your church involvement, these don't have to define you. Jesus offers a much better option to come and follow him. So when Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit and talks about goodness, he's referring to the goodness that only comes from repentance, that only comes from thankfulness, and that only comes from grace. If you ask him, God will reveal where you're holding on to control. He'll show you the one thing, but sometimes it'll hurt. Don't be a rich man. Be one of Jesus' beloved sheep.